As a church, we've been walking through the book of Philemon, a short little book, but a book that is jam-packed and full of of truth and full of wisdom, a a book that is full of um, what God has for us. And so um, we saw a couple weeks ago as we started the study of Philemon that it's really rooted in the book of Colossians. Really, Philemon is just kind of continuing on Colossians, and in particular Colossians 3, uh, where it tells us to be forgiving because we have been forgiven. And so we saw that this whole idea of what Philemon is getting at is really kind of takes place within that, that, that just as uh, we should forgive because we're forgiven. So Paul is writing to Philemon to compel him to forgive um, Onesimus, his slave, and to set him free. And so we saw last week that even the way that Paul orchestrates his greeting is oriented towards that, that Paul is building bridges with Philemon and that he is um, seeing him through the lens of Christ. And we're going to see that even Paul's prayer today um, is oriented this way, although maybe not in a way that we would expect. And so um, today we're going to be walking through Philemon's pra- or Paul's prayer for Philemon in Philemon verses 4 through 7. This is what God's Word says. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. It's God's word. Father, one more time I ask that you would fill us with your word, that you would help us to think according to your word and to long according to your word and to pray according to your word. Pray for these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, it might surprise you to know that um, as I was studying for uh, the sermon this week and as I was preparing and doing some background research, that um, about 25, I was so fascinated by this, about 25% of uh, atheists actually pray. You guys know that? It's interesting. What they pray for and why they pray and who they pray to, I don't know. Um, couldn't quite get the substance on that, but about 25% of atheists say that they pray regularly. I think that's fascinating because I, I, I think that even for those who reject God, even for those who shake their fist at him, even for those who are unsure if there's even absolute truth, there's still something in their heart, something within them that longs to connect with something that's bigger than themselves. That God has created all people in his image, and even in fallen mankind, even in people who are broken and corrupted and they don't quite, the compass in their heart is spinning and it's not quite pointing to true north, yet they still long to connect with something that's bigger than themselves. They still long to connect with a a God, a true God, a transcendent God who's over all things. Uh, There is a desire in all people to connect with with God, even though most people don't quite understand that. And yet, as we'll see, the way that Christians pray who we pray to and how we pray and why we pray is distinctive. That There's something unique about the way that Christians pray. And all across the world right now, there are people praying in mosques and temples, and I don't know where Confucians pray, and yet 
the prayers of the Bible, the, the prayers especially that we're going to see modeled by the Apostle Paul today, it is distinctively Christian. And I believe that it is packed with power. So when Christians pray, we assume certain things. There are certain things that Christians assume when we pray. And I'm going to unpack just a handful of those for now. Okay, There's many more. But Christians assume, number one, that we have been adopted by a loving father. Christians assume that we've been adopted by a loving father. Christians assume that that um, we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who's adopted us, who's welcomed us into His family. We see this in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 5. It says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That we have a Father in heaven who loves us, and who's adopted us, who's welcomed us into his family. Well, Christians believe that, that for those who are in Christ, for those who put their faith in Jesus, for those who've given themselves to Jesus and taken Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that there actually is a Father who loves them and wants to hear what they have to say. That's distinct. We believe that God loves us and cares for us and wants to hear our prayers. Secondly, Christians believe that we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest that Jesus Christ, our our Savior, is in heaven and he is mediating and interceding on our behalf by his own blood. Book of Hebrews chapter uh, 7 says it this way, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We have a high priest at the right hand of God the Father Almighty who is interceding by His own blood for our behalf. And this last phrase that we see in Hebrews 7 where it says that He is exalted above the heavens. That is actually an interpretation of Psalm 110, which is I, I love to, uh, to nerd out about and to, to kind of dig into. And, and what, what that interpretation is saying is that when Christ ascended on high, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty to be our priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And not only that, but as Ephesians 1 verse 3 says in Colossians, that we are actually with God. Christ right now. We're actually in Christ right now. That because we have a high priest who's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, we are seated with him. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we have a high priest at the right hand of God the Father Almighty who is interceding and mediating for our behalf, who by his own blood is bringing us before the Father and interceding for the Father. In fact, Hebrews will even call him our older brother. That we have an older brother, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God the Father, who's taken us into the holy of holies, the center of the universe, and is carrying our prayers to God. 
But Christians also believe not only do we have a loving father, not only do we have an older brother, Jesus, who we're united to and we're with him in heaven, even though we're here on earth, we also have a spirit of prayer, a spirit who's sent to us by the father and who unites us to the son and carries us up to the son in the heavenly places. Romans 8 tells us this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That the Father has sent His Son to, or His Spirit to unite us to the Son. And when the Son ascended, we ascended with Him. And even though we are here on earth, we are in Christ by faith and we are seated at the right hand of God the Father through faith and through the Spirit. When you and I pray to the Father, we are praying to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Almost always in the New Testament, that's the language that is used to describe prayer. Not, there's a couple times that it said that we pray to Jesus. And, and I think maybe once or twice that you could argue it says that we pray to the Spirit, but almost always we pray to the Father by the Son through the Spirit. And so when Paul approaches uh, these praying for Philemon and his prayers that he has in almost all of his other letters, Paul wrote 13 letters that we have, and, and only two of those don't have prayers. It's interesting. Galatians, that makes sense because Paul's not pleased with the Galatians. And Titus, I don't know why. But in Philemon, there is a prayer, and that prayer is predicated on these ideas that he's praying to the Father. We've already seen that, that the Father has adopted us into his family. We see that language. We saw it last week. We'll see it again this week. He's praying to the Father by the Son through the Spirit. And even when Paul doesn't necessarily come out and say all that, that's the way that he thinks. And so when you and I are praying, when Christians pray, we are entering into the inner life of God himself. Just think about that, that God has has adopted us into his family and has united us to his son by his spirit, and God has welcomed us into himself to bring our prayers into him. When you and I pray, we're praying to the Father by the Son through the Spirit. And I think what we're going to see here in this letter to Philemon, I think we will see a why we pray, our motivation to pray. Why do Christians pray? At least one motivation. And I think we're going to see what we pray for. Fundamentally, we're going to see what are the what is one example, I think the best example of something that we could be praying for for each other. So why we pray and what we pray. Why do we pray? Well, you can see Paul here gives actually a number of reasons, but I think they're all connected. So he says in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Simply, Paul prays because he remembers Philemon. He's, when he thinks about him, he, he, he prays for him. It's that simple. And I would encourage you, when the Lord puts somebody on your heart from here or somewhere else, to pray for them. I think that's a good reason. Um, and, and specifically, he gives this, these reasons in verse 5. Because I hear of your love, and I think that word love is applied to for all the saints at the end of the verse, because I hear of your love for all the saints. Paul has heard rumors of Philemon's reputation for being a loving pastor. 
Just think about it. Paul has heard Philemon's reputation for his love for all those who are in Christ. Who has affection. That for Philemon to be a pastor is not a duty. It's not a chore. It's not something that he didn't show up to the meeting for and he got elected to it. He loves the church. He loves the people of God. And he's thankful for them. And, and not only does he love, but the church loves him too. If you look down to verse 7, it says, For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. Same word, love, there. There's connection. My brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Um, if you. If you look at that word heart, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's the same word that we saw when we went through Colossians 3, 12 through 14. It's the Greek word splachna. It's a good German sounding word, so I was pointing out. I love to say it. Yeah, splachna. It's from which which we get our English word spleen, okay? And, And often when this word is used in the Bible, it refers to the deep visceral emotion of one Christian for another or sometimes even of Jesus's love for people. And so, What Paul is noticing is that the affections and the deep emotions and the longings and the yearnings of the the church there are being refreshed. They're being put to rest. They're being satisfied through Philemon. Not only does Philemon have this deep love for the church, but the church loves him. It's this relationship of love between pastor and people, between shepherd and flock. And Paul's thankful for that. That's one of the part of the reason that he that he prays for him. But fundamentally, he says, "For this is what his reaction to it is in verse seven. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love." So Paul sees this going on in Philemon. He sees this relationship that he has with the people. He sees this love that he has for the people and that the people have for him. And it causes Paul to rejoice and to have comfort. He's comforted by it. There's there's not a sense here of competition. There's not a a, a sense here of, of insecurity. But Paul's relationship to this is that he is overjoyed at Philemon's ministry. He's overjoyed at Philemon's relationship with the flock. He is excited about it. It it brings him comfort. It brings him joy. And out of the overflow of that joy comes his prayer. Out of the overflow of that joy at the ministry of Philemon, there there is this, this compulsion almost to lift Philemon up in prayer. That's part of the reason that Philemon, uh, but Paul prays for Philemon. We're going to see some of the same language later on in the book of Philemon. We'll draw attention to it when we get there. But that's not the only reason. And I think the ultimate reason that Paul prays for Philemon, the ultimate reason that he gives here, is the, the reason that's at the root of all of that. It's this. It says, because I heard of your love and of the faith, that you have toward the Lord Jesus. Notice how emphatic that is. He could have just said, your faith in Jesus. But notice how he kind of draws it out. And when Paul does that, he's trying to get our attention. He's, he's trying to draw it out. Because Paul knows that the love that Philemon has for the people, the, the affection that Philemon feels for the church, comes because he has faith in the Lord Jesus. 
love towards other Christians comes because of our faith in God. That Christianity is a, a vertical relationship with the Lord that bleeds into our horizontal relationships with others. And you'll notice, I, I want to point out two things about this idea of the sharing or of the, the faith that he has towards the Lord Jesus. Number one, it's towards the Lord Jesus. We talked about that last week when we talked about the greeting that Paul makes towards uh, Philemon. That that Philemon is being, or that Jesus was being included in the the, the name of the old uh, of the Old Testament God of Yahweh, and that Paul is recognizing that Jesus is divine. And so when he says uh, that your faith in the Lord Jesus, he's recognizing that Philemon actually believes, he actually trusts in the Lord. But it's not just the divine Lord; it's also the human. It's not just the Lord; it's the Lord Jesus. Philemon believes. Not just the fact that there is a God and that God has a name, but he actually believes that that God entered into human flesh and robed himself with human flesh and actually was incarnate among us. And so when Paul prays and he prays for Philemon, part of it is that he's motivated that Philemon understands the gospel and is teaching the gospel and preaching the gospel and believes in the gospel. But you also notice here when he says of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus, it's not a past tense. It's the faith that you have present tense. It's ongoing verb. That true faith, if we could put it this way, true faith lasts. Not only has Philemon made one profession of faith, not only did he walk down the aisle during VBS, nothing wrong with that. Not only did he raise his hand at the end of the service, nothing wrong with that. Not not only did he have a spiritual experience, but that his faith has endured. And it's made of tougher stuff. And it matters when when the trials and the, the cataclysms of this world crash against it. It doesn't melt away. And that brings Paul joy. See, the faith of another Christian, the faith of a a believer that is firm and it holds fast and it's right and it's true and it's directed in the right place. This love that Paul has for Philemon and this joy that Paul has in Philemon is rooted not only in the love that he has towards the people, as important and real as that is, but in the fact that he knows the Lord Jesus and his grip is strong and he is not letting go. That what Paul says about uh, the Philippians in Philippians 1.6 is true, Philemon, for I am certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul has a sure and steadfast joy in Philemon's faith that doesn't fade away. And that's what motivates him to pray. It's our joy in the faith of other Christians and the love of other Christians that should compel us to pray. And the what of why we pray, the the what we pray for for other Christians, I I don't think this is the only reason that we should pray for other Christians, but I, I might say it might be the best thing that we could pray for for other Christians. He gives that in verse six. Verse six is a mouthful, so we're just gonna take it little bit by little bit, but let me read it again just so we get the sense of it. Paul says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, again, Paul is stretching this out. He's like a preacher. He's really milking it, okay? So you know it's important. 
because he's and he keeps repeating himself. We see that he repeats the word faith again, so that must be really important. Okay. Um, let's let's start with this word sharing. Okay. Now, when I first read this, I initially read this. I um, I thought maybe he's talking about evangelism. You know, this is talking about him going out and telling others about the gospel. I'm a pastor, so I'm pro evangelism. Okay. There's. <laughs> If you have any question about that, I am in favor of it. But that's just not what this is talking about. That's not the meaning of this. Uh, this is the Greek word koinonia, and actually this is pointed out to me by Elder Scott. And um, the, the word koinonia means sharing, right? So it's participation, it's fellowship, it's, it, it's more than just acquaintances with one another during coffee hour, right? It, it's deep sharing. And, and this word for koinonia in the New Testament has um, some really deep roots, And so, for one thing, it actually describes the incarnation of Christ. In Hebrews 2, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And so, it's by the incarnation of Christ that that he shares in our nature. He actually becomes one with us. This is the kind of koinonia, deep fellowship that Philemon is describing here. But it also describes our fellowship with Christ and our fellowship with each other. So, 1 John 1, 3 says this, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have koinonia, fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Paul is identifying not only the the fellowship that, that Christ has with us in the incarnation, but that we have with us by virtue of us being united to him and sharing in him. It's this idea that we're seated with Christ again that we already talked about, that that we're in him and he is in us, that we've given him all of us and he's given us all of himself. That's kind of this this idea of participation that we're, we're sharing in him and it's the participation of faith. It's the sharing of faith. It comes from faith. Doesn't come because Philemon's entitled to it. Doesn't come because he's a particularly impressive person. That you and I share in Christ and we're united to Christ by faith. Not not by works, not because we can be good enough, that this union that we have with Christ comes because we cast ourselves upon him. We wholeheartedly hold on to him. We don't let go. That's where this idea of faith comes from. Paul says it like this. In Galatians 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul says again in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. 
that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul is praising God for and praying for concerning Philemon. Uh, Something to do with this union that Philemon has with Christ that comes by faith, that he's found in Christ, that he belongs to Christ, that he is not his own, but he belongs to another. This is what Paul is praying for. And, And he prays something specific. He says, I pray that the koinonia of your faith, that the sharing of your faith, the participation that comes because of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. For the full knowledge. Now, when we hear this word knowledge, we tend to think information. Like I'll read a book and I'll retain it and I can memorize it and memorize for the text for the test. But God doesn't really do standardized tests. So knowledge, biblically speaking, is not only information, it involves information. But it involves this idea of experiencing the Lord. To, to know Him, it, it goes beyond the level of mere information. It penetrates to the heart. If I could put it this way, it gets, you, you know it when you know Him in your bones. That it, it's, it's deep, it changes the heart, it, it changes the soul, it changes. That's, that's, that's what it means to know. And Paul is pleading with God. That this union that Paul, or this union that Philemon has with Christ, this sharing that he has with Christ, would lead to a deeper and fuller experience of the knowledge of God in Christ. That, that's what he's pleading for. That, that Philemon would progress in his knowledge of Christ. Not only an informational knowledge, but where he knows it in his bones. That he has this experience of him, that he, he is, is deep in him. That's, that's what Philemon, that's what Paul wants for Philemon. And what is that full knowledge? What is that experience? What is, the, what is he trying to push him to? It says, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. For the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. Well, what are the good things that are in us who are in Christ? Well, in the passage that we um, have referenced a couple times in Ephesians 1, where we learned earlier that we're seated with him in the heavenly place, that we're united to him and we're ascended with him on high, we found that there are a number of good things. If you read that passage, you find there's a number of good things. That we're justified before God in Christ, that we're reconciled, that we're redeemed, that we're adopted, that we're predestined, that we have the love of God, that we're resurrected with Christ. There's all these good things. And I think you could say Paul really wants Philemon to know what those things mean. And he really wants them to experience it. But I think there's something deeper. I think there's something deeper. I think this is probably what Paul has in mind. In Colossians, remember we said Colossians is the, the literary background for, for the book of Philemon. Colossians 1.27 says it this way. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the, of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What Paul wants Philemon to know in his bones, what he wants him to have a deeper, fuller experience of, 
What he wants him to, to know in a way that goes beyond information, not less than information, but goes beyond information, is to know what it means that Christ is in you. The hope of glory. This is Paul's prayer that Philemon would come to have this deep, intimate experience and knowledge of Christ in him, the hope of glory. And there is no greater prayer that you could pray for someone than that. That they would come to know Christ in a deep way, in a way that gets in their bones. Paul will say it this way in the letter to the Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's prayer for Philemon. That he would know Christ in him in a way that surpasses knowledge. That's a prayer request that can, that's something that can only be had by prayer because that's not something we can produce. It's only something that can come from God. Two more more things about this before we apply, before we get into the nuts and bolts of applying this. You'll, You'll notice he says, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in who? Not you, that is in us. The way that Paul looks at Christians, the way that Paul understands Christians, is if you have this participation in Christ, if you're united with Christ, then you will be united with others. Christianity is a vertical religion first, that we are justified before God first, but then if we are in Christ, if we truly share in Christ, then we also share in one another. If I could put it this way, Paul has no category for a Christian who is not deeply connected to other Christians. To him, it's, it's an oxymoron. That for, to be a Christian outside of community makes no sense. And he, can't even, he, he doesn't even think about it that way. He thinks about, when he thinks about Christians, it's almost always in the plural because we all belong to Christ together. If we belong to Christ, we also belong to each other. If I could also say this, you'll notice the end of it is that is in us for the sake of Christ. That is in us because of Christ. See, the reality is this is a really great thing to be welcomed into the inner life of God, to know Christ, to have a deep experience of Christ, to know him in our bones, and yet we do not deserve it. In fact, it's actually something that we have run as fast and as far away from as we can. And that we have, we have pushed God away. And the fact of the matter is that we have a Savior who came to seek and to save the lost who came and put himself on the cross, who nailed our sins to the cross, who who reconciled us to God so that we could share in Christ, 
We have a, a Savior who bore our debts, who, in order to welcome us in, was himself kicked out. In order for us to be forgiven, he was himself forsaken. In order for us to be made right with God, to be justified, he was condemned. If I could put it this way, Christ purchased the right to share himself with you. Christ purchased the right to share himself with you. Christ bought that at the price of his own blood that you and I might come to know the height and the depth and the width of the love of God in Christ for us. Now, maybe you're thinking this, you're like, this is really this is great stuff. Seems out of place, though, right? <laughs> a little bit, right? I mean, Paul is going to, in a minute, ask Philemon to set the slave Onesimus free and essentially to forgive him and to be reconciled. Why isn't there like a passive-aggressive prayer in here? You know, like, not that I would ever do this, but some preachers have been known to pray and fill up whatever's missing in their sermon and their prayers. Why, why doesn't Paul say, and I, Lord, I just pray that Philemon would really come to his senses and just know that he can't hold us. Why doesn't Paul do that? Seems out of place, this prayer, doesn't it? Here's why. Paul knows that to change deeply... This is a very sensitive situation that Paul's addressing. It's a situation that involves not just a change of behavior, but a change in heart. And Paul knows that to change deeply means you have to know Christ deeply. You and I have no power to change if we haven't first ourselves come to know Christ. Paul says it this way in the letter of the Romans. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To change deeply, you have to know deeply. I'm not talking about having a really good academic informational mind. Praise God for people who do. I'm, I'm talking about this you got to know them in your bones. you got to know the truth of the gospel in your bones. You, gotta, you have to have this deep heart encounter with Christ. That's the only way that you and I have a hope to change. And Paul knows that if he's going to get Philemon to do this, if he's going to get Philemon to, to change, if he's going to get Philemon to set Onesimus free and to change his mindset, to, to counteract something that is very prevalent in his culture, it has to start with him knowing Christ. It has to start with him knowing the Lord. That's the only hope that we have for deep change. Paul's joy at the work that Christ had done in Philemon, both to justify him and also to reconcile him to other believers, compelled him to pray that he would know Christ deeply. And our prayers for one another ought to be motivated likewise. It ought to be that our love and our joy at what Christ is doing in the lives of other Christians ought to motivate us to pray that one another would know Christ in a way that Paul says in Ephesians surpasses knowledge. To know him in our bones. That's what ought to motivate our prayers.
So let me apply this in a couple different ways. Number one, Christ purchased the right to share himself with you by faith. Christ bought that. Belongs to him. That he, he had to die in order to do that for you. And he did it by faith. You're never going to be good enough for that. You're never going to be worthy enough for that. You're never, you're never going to be on your best behavior for that. Christ purchased the right to share himself with you by faith. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe, maybe you've gone to church your whole life and maybe your whole life has just been, you're just counting up your good deeds and you're hoping that when you get to the pearly gates that St. Peter will look at your life and he'll realize, oh, there's more good than there is bad here. That we'll, They kind of overact each other and so we'll let him this far into the heavenly city. And I just have to tell you, that's not how it works. Christ purchased the price to share himself with you by faith, not by works. None of us can be good enough for that. But praise God, all of us can believe. There's no one here who has sinned so far that God would say, I really don't want that person. I, 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 like there's just this, I, I love you so much, but there's just this thing that you said when you were 18 to that other person. Yeah, I was watching. That's not how God, God bought, the, bought the right to share himself with you by faith. Number two, if you want to change deeply, you have to know Christ deeply. If you want to stop being angry with other people, if you want to stop being so judgmental, if you want to stop being so critical, if you want to stop going on that website, you have to know Christ deeply. You have to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You have to, you have to actually be transformed. You have, you have to let the knowledge of God wash over you in a way that surpasses knowledge. You have to know him in your bones. If you want to change deeply, it means you have to know Christ deeply. Third, if you share in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, if you are a participant with him, if you're united to him, if you're seated with him in the heavenly places, so are others. So are others. We... There's no place, biblically speaking, that is made for the person who just doesn't have other relationships with other Christians. That when Christ saved you, he also saved the person sitting in the pew next to you and behind you and in front of you. That to, to be in Christ means that you're in Christ with other Christians. And so if you and I are, are going to know Christ deeply, that means we, we have to know him together doesn't happen on our own. It doesn't happen when we push others away. It doesn't happen when we hide our lives from others. It doesn't happen when, when we don't have deep relationships with other Christians where we don't get to pour into their lives and encourage them and lift them up and sometimes you know, rebuke them and sometimes be rebuked. It doesn't happen if we don't take the time to do that. If you and I want to know Christ deeply, it means we have to know him together. I'd also say this. <laughs> Our joy, our joy 
for the work that Christ is doing in others' lives. Our joy for the work that Christ is doing in other lives ought to motivate us to pray for them. And maybe you say, I could never pray like Paul does here. And I would say, if you rejoice like Paul rejoiced, you would pray like Paul does. Oftentimes, we're so quick to look at what is going wrong in other people's lives. All the ways they misstep, all the ways they, 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 they don't get it right, all the ways that there's just something off. And yet, if we want to have heartfelt prayers for them, that means we have to rejoice at what God is doing or could do in their life. We have to rejoice at the ways that we see them growing. We have to rejoice at the ways that we see them progressing. We have, to re- we have to be on the lookout for the ways that other people are actually being changed and actually being transformed. That's what will motivate us to pray for them. And number five, the best, not the only thing, but I, th- I think the best thing that you can pray for for another person is that they would know Christ deeply. I, I, as I was studying for this and I was Praying, I try to pray for you all on Sunday mornings before sun, uh, service starts. I was so convicted by that. So often my prayers are only on earthly things. And God does want us to pray about earthly things. He says, cast all your anxieties and cares on him, for he loves you. But oftentimes I forget to pray for the spiritual things. I forget to pray, I forget to pray for that other people would know Christ more deeply. Often I, am, often I am quick when someone is going through suffering to pray that suffering would be relieved, but to forget to pray that there's sancti- for the sanctification that happens in suffering. Christians, not the only thing, I'm not saying we don't pray for the physical needs each other, one another has. I'm saying we add on to that praying for the spiritual need that we all have, that we would know Christ deeply. And there is nothing better in this life than that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you bought the right for us to be called children of God. That you bought it at the cost of your own son. I thank you that you reconciled us to you by his blood. Father, I thank you that you give to us not only to be forgiven, but to be welcomed into your inner life, to be able to call you Abba, Father, and to be able to have your spirit and be able to know your son more deeply. Father, I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know what it looks like to know your son deeply, if there's someone here who doesn't know what it's looked like to have this deep, intimate relationship with Christ, a knowledge of Christ that surpasses knowledge, God, would you give them the understanding to know that? Would you open up their hearts? Father, would this be the moment in time where the blinds, the scales fall away from their eyes? But God, for all of us who are here, many of us who've walked with Christ for many years, God, would you help us to know your Son more deeply? Would you help us to know him in our bones? That we are really seated with him, that we really are justified, that he really has given himself to us and for us. Father, we want to have full knowledge of him. 
So I pray that this song we're about to sing and as we go out from here and the conversation that will cross between our lips, Father, I pray that that would all serve the purpose of knowing him more deeply. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.